Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I'm Jason Friesma, hosting this episode. I'm the Chief Clinical Officer of Peaks Recovery. And uh, we are going to be talking about some family issues today. So I decided to invite on the Burns brothers. Uh, I don't know if this is crazy or a great idea. We'll see. Uh, stay tuned. Um, introducing Chris Burns, President and Founder of Peaks Recovery Services, and Brandon Burns, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Peaks Recovery. Um, and so uh, today we are going to be uh, going over uh, a letter that we received um, that asked us some questions, uh, and I think it could generate some good discussion. So um, what I'm going to do uh, is I'm going to read the letter, and then uh, we're going to start responding to it. So um, here's the letter we received. Um, I just finished watching your interview with Dr. Kevin McCulley. Loved it. My nearly 26-year-old daughter researched uh, the meadows back in September, and there was no space available for a few weeks. She went to a 30-day inpatient program that did have space, and it seems like now her trauma has been exposed, and she's like an open wound. It's really sad and painful to watch, and I imagine she feels awful. She has been in a relapse slash on a binge with alcohol since last Thursday. Have you ever done a video in response to a loved one during a relapse? Well... We will now. Uh, this is our first relapse experience, and usually she does reach out, not our first relapse experience, and usually she does uh, reach out for help slash detox within a few days. This relapse, she has not wanted much communication or interaction, and the days keep ticking by. I'm trained in craft, which has uh, been helpful in the past. However, I'm feeling helpless at the moment. So... Uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to call you helpless. Helpless, this ep episode is for you. Um, we want to uh, kind of collectively have a response to this. So, um, Brandon, I know you kind of, uh, this episode was yours. Uh, you brought in Dr. Kevin McCulley, and I just kind of wanted to hear your first impression when you read this letter. Uh, I mean, shoot, great question, man. I was not anticipating that. I was hopeful for a little more a little more grounding on the craft there, but okay. I, you oh, know, you want you want to answer? Yeah, that? I, what wanna, is, Brandon, I wanna. What is craft? I just want to do left brain stuff. Just okay. so, I know. Like, I <laughs> my my first you know response to it. I mean, you know, one you know filled with gratitude certainly that people are hearing mm -hmm. these episodes and and listening to you know what we have to say and you know are inspired to write us finding peaks at peaksrecovery.com right where all the episode and ideas come from. So you know, um, so being able to connect with family systems, I you know feels really great because that's the whole point of this how can we educate how can we promote how can we bring people closer to solutions and help them you know uh ease the experience of the pain you know as they move through it addiction mental health or otherwise uh in that regard so um you know for me i i hear a family system suffering and um as best trained as we are you know we talked about boundaries on a you know several several episodes over the course of this and boundaries all the time and how important and valid they are, but how difficult they can be in moments like this of continued relapse and so forth about implementing. So my heart, first and foremost, goes out you know, to the mother, certainly the individual uh, additionally suffering in the background, her loved one, her daughter uh, as well too. And you know, I, I also think there's a balance between, okay, how do we uphold boundaries? How do we nurture this individual? And how do we promote personal responsibility that we've talked about in texts like Gabor Mate, um, the phenomenological experience that Dr. Kevin McCauley brought up about kind of all of our general intuitions and experiences in this world. If anybody was asked, you know, do you experience free will? Y yeah, I think most people are going to do that. And that's what Kevin McCauley was trying to lean into uh, during his time a little bit. Or just make that aware that that is part of this, that there is responsibility on behalf of the individual, um, you know, when it comes to putting 
not just getting everything correct in a single moment, but putting just that next best foot forward. And there's a responsibility there. And then now that those you know, feet are moving forward one step by one step uh, in that regard, now how can that mother continue to support those you know, steps moving forward? So I think you know, that, that kind of summarizes in my long-winded responses, as you know, yeah, my I, experience around that. I look forward to that. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think it brings up a really good point on my side. And I, what I call that is it's personal responsibility and, and, and family integration. And it's, and it's loving somebody into recovery. You know, and how do, we, how do we actively love someone into recovery who's out there in their pain and in their shame? And, I, and I, just like Brandon, I just want to um, shout out to the family for you know, submitting this to our yeah. website. It's really helpful. It it's nice. Courage. And it's, it takes courage. It's yeah. courageous. And we just really, really appreciate that. And, I've been really waiting to dive into this topic, and I think loving someone into recovery can look a lot different in different family systems, but I'm, I'm brought back to when people were making their best efforts to love me into recovery, and I was really struggling with it um, because I didn't have what I would consider to be really, really important, which was a lot of value. Um, it wasn't inherent to me. I didn't see it in a developmental process. It, but I remember along the way in my first couple of go-arounds, a couple of men came into my life, and I wasn't doing well. Um, but they wanted me to get back into the lane of recovery and wanted to support me into this. And it was two men, um, and they both said something very simple to me when I was out there. And they said, I believe in you, Chris. And I think sometimes when people are out there struggling for whatever reason, um, it's important to feel necessary and a part of something. And I think for young people, myself included, and maybe this young adult, mm -hmm. to continue to love them into recovery through those simple statements that keep them connected to the family system. And to Brandon's point, continue to ensure that that personal responsibility is there through things like question asking, like, you know, what does my recovery support look like in this situation? You know, how can I show up in a recovery fashion for you? And, um, I just wanted to mention that because through my personal experience, you know, some of those very what seem to be menial um, praises or affirmations can really turn out to mean the world um, when we're really scraping and clawing um, to put one day in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate you guys kind of capturing the heart of this, you know, struggling parent that's walking through this. And um, one, of the, one of the first things I thought of when I was reading this, um, I, I the opportunity this last week to facilitate the, the family group um, because uh, Pema was out of town uh, this last week. And uh, we were kind of going over uh, what relapses can look like and uh, some of the warning signs of relapses. And, and honestly, it tends to be a really heavy topic to go over with families. Um, it's not fun to sit there and be like, you know, the statistics are like, this is a tough thing to treat. And um, and particularly uh, addiction, in particular, um, the likelihood of relapse, unfortunately, uh, is not great. Like, yeah. I, I, at best, it's a coin flip. And, and, I, and I don't like telling families that. I don't like to look at people and say that. Um, but it's true. And, I, and then I tell families, your work as a, as a mother and as a father, a brother, a sister, a kid, mm -hmm. um, is to do your work so that you're okay either way. Mm -hmm. And you can hear a pin drop after I say that yeah. every time. Like, that is not a pleasant thing to tell people. But, you know, it's, it's family members' job as well to kind of enter into their own uh, recovery process that does make them okay either way, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. 
Uh, and then there's all the other things that we can do and talk about in interventions, and we'll get to some of that here. But I do want to mention that part. Like it's just that's a really important piece. Mm -hmm. And the author of this letter um, mentioned that uh, she's trained in craft. And Brandon, I think you did a little homework on craft. Um, Brought my left brain here for the yeah. for the meeting. So craft for the viewers out there is a community reinforcement approach to family training. Uh, you can go to the website, check it out. Um, certainly incredible information, but I pulled one snippet from it. You can find it on the website, but for the sake of the viewers out there holding their popcorn and you know, soda for this episode, in craft, you will not learn to confront your loved one to break through their denial. Instead, you will learn how to break your unintentional participation in patterns related to their loved one's use. You will learn how to stop your engagement in these patterns in ways that keep you safe set appropriate boundaries and are consistent with the type of person you want to be, in this case as a mother, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for example, a mother who often calls her son's employer to say that he is too sick to come into work when in reality he's too hungover to come into work might stop making those calls, a little you know, benign example just being sure. stared. Instead, she might calmly express that she is no longer willing to call in sick for her son and offer to help him get ready for work if he wishes to do so yeah. uh, in that regard. So a little foundation uh, for craft there. And again, it, I think it, you know, uh, kind of brings us into that boundary discussion as well too, right? You know, the point of the boundary is like personal safety. You're looking at your loved one suffer, in this case, you know, the mother who's concerned here, you know, for a loved one, and what a pain that must be to watch somebody suffer in that way, especially your loved one, and also feel like, well, I'm trained in this, mm -hmm. and I, I, I still can't reach them, right? And I think that's this approach here where it gets really difficult because boundaries and emotional safety kind of the movement away from at times, at least in my experience, families start to feel unsafe in the movement away because they want to rescue, they want to hold and that sort of thing. And so I think right off the bat, um, this mother in particular might be experiencing that, that this craft thing actually is quite difficult to do and the yeah. boundary setting is the hardest part because that's my daughter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with it? Right. Yeah, and I, th I think you, you bring up a really interesting topic there. And I think for parents, it's important to understand, I say this a lot, but I think sometimes when we're setting boundaries, sometimes we can be really external with it. And it's much more, in my opinion, an internal proposition. You know, what am I trying to protect? What is the value, right, that I'm trying to boundary around? And so for parents, you know, really kind of, you know, putting pen to paper and say, you know, what is the value system that this is detracting from? And why are we not going to participate in this? And why does it make sense? Instead of just setting the boundary, because sometimes for a parent to set a boundary like that, it can feel like you just cut off your right arm. You know, unless it's really informed, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, through that value set. And so, and if we can conceptualize for a moment, I think for parents too, who haven't been in the position of a, someone who's suffering from a mental health disorder, which are using substances to cope and coming off the back end of a 30 day treatment program, if we can conceptualize for a moment, maybe she was in grief week, you know, she's in um, developmental trauma week, she's in family history, you know, whatever it is. And then she leaves the 30 day program, doesn't have an opportunity for aftercare or follow up. And so she's in a position of experience just an immense amount of shame and pain and unworthiness and lack of esteem and nobody cares. And there's not one person, and I want to be very clear with this, just having a lot of personal and professional experience. There is not one person who is beating themselves up worse than the person that's out there engaged in this maladaptivity, unfortunately. And so I think the more compassion and the more assertive we can be with our values and boundaries with love, I think the young person or the person who's suffering can see clearly that they are valued and loved. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Chris. And, and you touched on the thing that I definitely picked up on when I read this letter too, of um, this mother describes uh, her daughter's um, 
exposed nerve around the trauma. And I know it, trauma is something that uh, I think we all have a different take on, but we all feel pretty passionately about uh, here. And like, I think um, she, the mother kind of describing the raw nerve that she feels like has left the program. And, you know, from my role at Peaks, like I, I talk to clinicians about, um, we need to be mindful that our clients are on an arc, right? Like they're on a treatment arc that has a beginning, middle and end. And um, we can't begin to do deep trauma work in a 30 or 45 day model and then just suddenly expect somebody to walk, you know, re-enter their life. They are kind of an exposed nerve. Like I, I appreciate uh, that analogy. And it is why, you know, it, we focus so much on really helping people maybe find a safe space and maybe work on mindfulness and work on kind of treating some of the symptoms of the trauma um, as well as we can uh, with the knowledge that like, hey, we have to give them some tools and then really make sure they have a robust referral after or kind of continuing on in either our, our, our IOP program or an IOP program that they can uh, maybe find some more resolution in their trauma because trauma doesn't go away in a, in a month. I don't, yeah. I don't care what, how good a program yeah. is. It's just not going to happen. And, um, and so, I don't know, Brandon, what, what was your thoughts about that portion of the, the letter focusing on the trauma? Yeah, so, you know, for me, it, uh, you know, one of the things this industry is getting right, right, is going under the hood of a substance use disorder and yeah. recognizing that trauma and depression and you know communal events and all of these things are the thing that's driving for me what's underneath all of it like not feeling safe mm -hmm. and i've talked about it several or i've used the quote in company culture a ton of times but sebastian junger in the book tribe like people don't mind hardship you know what people do mind uh is not feeling necessary yeah. and society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary and so when i think about a continuum of care and that arc you're talking about you know, why we advocate so much in our industry for aftercare programming and planning at the end of the day is because, you know, commonly we experience it at peaks. People are like, oh, okay, I feel good. I'm in the best moment of my life. Thanks for the trauma work, all of that. And I'm going to go get a job. That's what I got to do next. Like, who's telling you that that's the next step in this? Because shooting for a job as you pass the liquor store, you know, coming off of an alcohol use disorder, you know, our identified AUD uh, in that regard is not safe, right? And so going into the work environment where our tolerance for the stressors in those environments, right? We haven't resolved all of our maladaptive behaviors and all those things in the background. So we might start asking ourselves as individuals in recovery and family systems around it, like what is the most meaningful, safest spot in this regard? Because when I reflect on at least the letter in this regard, yes, she's exposed and her trauma is, that's gonna happen, right, in any recovery journey or in any experience around you know, uh, inpatient programming or counseling or so forth. What seems to have happened, in, from my view, it is it's exposed and we went right back into an environment that's not safe. Um, yep. And so it doesn't mean that mom's not safe or those types of things, I don't wanna conflate this, but for whatever reason, it's spiraling out of control, um, not because aware of the trauma, it's aware of the trauma and I'm still in a situation of where I'm not safe. Yeah. And so I don't mind the hardship of going through that moment as a trauma. I'm not feeling necessary in this moment and not feeling necessary leads to shame and shame leads to non-safety, right? Yeah. Um, so that's my, you know, without giving too much of my notes away, that's <laughs> kind of um, what, what comes up for me and in all of these texts that we've talked about, Gabramante and so forth, that um, it's the lack of safety in the world. Any one of us can get on social media right now politics, 
I mean, for anybody out there, the reason we're reactionary as a community is because we don't feel safe in what we're reading. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, whatever. Whatever side of the story you're reading is leading to non-safety. And that's at a national level. Mm -hmm. Okay, now take it down from there. Okay, inflation. Okay, my job doesn't pay me enough. I can't afford to put food on the table in the way that I see it. Like, I'm not feeling safe. I can't take care of myself anymore, right? And to me, it's the communal environment that we're living in and its non-safe features is why, why we're so bent at the end of the day as a treatment setting for continued aftercare because continued aftercare continues to promote those safe spaces, period. Yeah, yeah and they're wildly, wildly helpful because what's most certainly gonna happen, and especially if we call it what, what I think it is, which is we have this mental health disor disorder of which we've developed a sensational appetite for substances to cope, right? And so as we go through and we, it's, to me, it's like we, the substance use disorder doesn't need a lot of work, but the mental health needs so much, yeah. right? And, and so as we go in and we work on this mental health, if we don't have a, and that's what the Meadows and Kevin McCauley do beautifully, is that they don't allow a lot of people to leave their facility from the Claudia Black Center without going to aftercare. In fact, it's, it's nearly required because that safety has to be there. And even though the young adult or the mature adult, a lot like myself, is feeling like I'm ready to take on the world, they can't see what they can't see in their vulnerable recovery. And so these outpatient settings, and, and Peaks does a phenomenal job of this, and I get to see it each and every month, both in Denver and in Colorado Springs, is it provides this kind of sanctuary and this outlet to counterbalance just this world and my early recovery adversity, which is both going on real time. And so I'm hopeful, um, certainly for this case, you know, in the future that you know, we get to wrap hopefully get to wrap around a great inpatient program followed by a community-based outpatient program that can really mean the world because, to Brandon's point, there are most certainly going to be bumps and scrapes along the way. Um, but I like the idea of you know, losing a little instead of a lot. And I think in our culture, and certainly in recovery culture, it's been this huge pendulum swing. And in 12-step way of life, I can remember you know, someone would be there with 15 years and come back the next day with nothing. You know, 15 years of family, of business, and friends. And so I think we have a really genuine and authentic opportunity today um, to really move into a safer recovery um, and a more integrated recovery for everybody. And, and you know, we're going to get into, or I wish to get into, you know, this personal responsibility aspect, right? Because some people are going to take that likely as like, oh, okay, so just tie your boots and get out there and get it done and stop behaving in that sort of way. That's not what it's intended. It's just intended to separate that, you know, at the end of the day, in some of these quotes I'll read, right, that, um, you know, the work, you know, you guys sent me on an intervention out to the Meadows and did a Survivor's Week there. I, it was therapeutic, it was worthwhile, invested in the trauma experience, but in leaving there and the coin that you get in that experience is like, damn, this is kind of on me at the end of the day, to put one foot in yeah. front of the other. Um, you know, not so I don't have to show back up a treatment or, or, or any of that type of stuff, but that there's a real responsibility in here to get well at the end of the day. And I also wanna just honor you know, the daughter who's drinking the alcohol as well too, because when we think about non-safety, right, it's not, it's not that the alcohol works, right? It's not why the drugs, why the alcohol, it's why the pain, right? right. What, it, what, it, what we've come to know and what it's doing for the individual, it's drowning out the non-safety around them, right? It's, kind of the worst, most unfortunate blanket to drown that out with, but that's how these uh, substance use disorders are relating to these things. And so with that, the person absolutely should have, we should all give the individual empathy and in what they're going through in that regard. And I just wanna honor that that's what the mechanism is here. It's, it's not, 
my take on it at least is not that they're drowning out the trauma. The trauma's there and stuck in time. They're drowning out the fact that the world around them is not safe and they have no outlet. I, th I think that's a great point, Brandon, because I do yeah. think that that's something that you and I go back and forth on or have a little bit that um, when somebody's in trauma, like, I mean, we talk about, you, you like to talk about agency and, and free will and that sort of thing. I, I kept pointing for you, you say, say free will. But, you know, when somebody's in trauma, like, it means they have an automatic uh, fight or flight mm -hmm. response to kind of these benign uh, stimulations, if you will, mm -hmm. these, these events. Mm -hmm. So, like, going back home, to your point, it may not be anything about the home in particular mm -hmm. that, that is traumatic, at least in that moment, but, they're, but that benign tr trigger can cause people to then act in ways that kind of put people on autopilot, right? That, and that's what trauma does, and, that, mm -hmm. and it takes time to un unwind that and unravel that and then figure out new ways to kind of take agency back, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I 100% and I agree with that. And so this isn't like brute force, like I can move my arm. So I'm all this free will operating. And all, you know, to me, like counseling and what it does and, and what its major benefits are is like it creates that awareness. And out of that awareness, the more aware we become, the more responsible. That's the trade-off, at least in our mm -hmm. you know, legal system, right? But um, it's, it's in that awareness that we're calling on people to put that next best foot forward from uh, a treatment center uh, standpoint at the end of the day. And it's with each step forward and the new awareness, oh, that's a trigger. Okay, don't step on that line. Maybe a relapse or a lapse comes from that moment or whatever. Okay, but I don't have a new awareness about that trigger. Go work on it, get some new toolkits from the counselor and then go out there again as best I can put that foot forward, right? It is this incremental process, not this brute force all of a sudden obtained. Mm -hmm. But I do want to note that I think in our general experience in inpatient environments, right, is, you know, people get to 30, 45 days of treatment, they're like, I got this. Yeah. Um, sure. And it's, and I get why we might experience that as individuals after five days, of, you know, and survivors, we go, it's like, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I got this. Because in those rooms, you're feeling <laughs> safe yeah. yeah. than you ever have. Yeah, safer but than you ever have. But you're in an environment that is not going to transition with you outside. Yeah. And then not some, in that way. Yeah. And somehow I'm going to walk back into the house and look at the fridge that used to have beer in it, it's not gonna have, and I'm not gonna be triggered by that. And I'm gonna somehow feel safe in that moment and not retort to anything else that's going on. And you know, I think that's one of the biggest misses in why family systems, it's you know, from a, a boundary standpoint, and this isn't directed at this mother you know, whatsoever, but it's just reminding me of like, you know, family systems are like, okay, come home, let's try it in this way. But we know working with the individual, they're pointing at home as an issue. And we've talked about it as a family system, and then there's like this hope of like, well, maybe we'll get it right this time. And then you know, two weeks later, it's you know, we get the phone call, and it's just like, well, you relapsed, and like this isn't working. It's like, I know because that's not the direction we should have been taking from the beginning. We have to honor non-safety, mm -hmm. and we have to honor just like an alcohol use disorder, any substance use disorder, and a traumatic experience that if somebody's been you know entrenched in their trauma for ten years with no work on it, the amount of triggers in the world, the movie theaters, driving in the road, you know, road rage, whatever it is, there could be tens of thousands of triggers for the substance use disorder and those traumatic states, right? So it's like a landmine that's out there, the individual's safe in treatment, and it's difficult within that mode to recognize it, you know, and again, so just advocating always for that aftercare programming and for families to know that like, that's why it's so important because mm -hmm. in 30, 45 days, it doesn't matter what the treatment center is. It doesn't matter how good we are at exposing trauma and creating that direction. Like we can't make the world safe from a treatment setting. And that's what these aftercare settings do is it puts the person in the next best possible bucket for continued recovery. 
It doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect recovery, mm -hmm. but that direction matters because it helps them put that best foot forward and create that next level of awareness. Yeah. And I think family systems out there, and this isn't like a shot at family systems, I think some family systems will probably watch and be like, well, what's, what's wrong with the home? And I've had, and I just want to be clear, I've had young adults describe for the, from their great families, say, my family's great. They're amazing, but something about when I transition back home and I walk in the door, it feels like I put on a weighted blanket. Yeah. You know? Because the, it's not the family experience that's in that house, it's the developmental experience, right. which is the zero to 18, zero yeah. to 17 yeah. thing. And oftentimes I always tell families, because I know, shoot, I'm a dad, you know, that might put me into shame, but I always tell families, you know, it's hard to be a parent. As Brandon's mentioned, you know, the world tells us on every single commercial to chase up the hill to get the pot of gold, and only when you get up there you find out that actually nobody's there, you know, and you actually don't want to be there. And I think there's studies out in the myth of normal that say that uh, fathers should spend more time at home with their newborn children. Three months. What job on planet Earth is giving men and women the time off to integrate and attune with their young? And so I, I want to give the, um, an attaboy to family systems because it's really hard to be a parent yeah. um, in this culture. And, and one more comment to it, because you know, Dr. Kevin McCoy, you asked him on the episode, like, if you had all the money in the world, what would be the thing? And he was like, sober living, like uh, communal homes for individuals, like that, it has to be there. It's a safety mechanism. Yeah. That's what he's trying to really drive home, I think, with that comment, uh, is that if you have enough of these safe spaces, you have more opportunities. You don't eliminate relapses. You just create more opportunities for individuals to find that safe place to continue to put that next best foot forward. And so, you know, I just want to bring that in as well, too, because this isn't just a peaks thing. I think that, you know, the Gabor Mate text is, is so powerful because it seems like the world is starting to figure out that society is potentially a big part of this problem yeah. and not feeling safe as a mechanism. And it's what's leading to the continued disruption in the absence of aftercare safety, at least out of a program like Peaks or the Meadows and so forth. Yeah, and I, I think as you guys were talking, I, I want to get it all the way back around to this mother who emailed us and, and to kind of talk about um, a direct response to uh, what matters is the ability to set boundaries. And I know I'm a parent as well, and sometimes setting boundaries, like it doesn't feel good, <laughs> to be honest. And like, um, honestly, there are times when setting boundaries feels like I'm a bad father uh, in this way. And, and I think that's what this person needs, what this young woman needs, honestly, is boundaries. Loving, caring boundaries. And boundaries, I, I, wanna, I said it, I'll say it probably every other episode I'm on here, boundaries are not to change her behavior, not to stop her from drinking, but to say, this is what I need, these are the boundaries I need to be safe myself. And that likely means that that daughter's then gonna go then face some of these harsh realities of the world and then hopefully, um, with good solid boundaries can kind of re-enter the family system in a safe way, right? And I think about boundaries like, hey, I will always buy you a meal. I will never give you a dollar of my money, but I will always buy you a meal. Mm -hmm. I'll take you to the laundromat if that's what you need to do. Um, I will, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get you a shower. I'll take you to a truck stop. You can shower, whatever it might be. Um, I'll meet some of your basic human needs anytime you reach out, but like you can't enter the threshold of my house or you right. cannot, um, it'll, it'll create too much chaos here until you go through this next rehab. Like, I think it's important as part of a boundary, part of what makes a boundary, I think, really loving is saying, hey, this is, 
this is the path back uh, into the house, and it has to go through a rehab process, or you know, if, if that can't be afforded through some sort of community support process as well as some demonstrated sobriety. But like those are the boundaries that keep people safe. And what interferes, I think, a lot with that are parents' own shame. We all have it, right? I feel like I'm a bad dad, yeah. certainly at times. I'm sure, Chris, no offense, but you probably do too. Yeah. We all experience, I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad mom, shame buttons. Uh, it just happens. Um, and certainly we can look at our young adult kids, like I have young adult kids, and I can certainly look at aspects of their life and be like, I can see where I fell short or, or didn't uh, meet their needs in whatever way. But that doesn't mean that it's my responsibility um, to heal my kids' problems. It's my responsibility to have boundaries and to be a guide or, or whatever along their path. But um, anything that impedes that is me acting in my own shame and probably perpetuates the problem further. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thoughts, Brandon, Chris. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, the directionality of it matters. I, I, I might be a little off base. It's just coming. It's coming up. For I'll me. let you know if you are. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. you. <laughs> yeah. But I think about Carry like our, our, out, our outcomes. You know, here at so much of our outcomes is based on the completion of treatment and the continued aftercare. And I think that's true for any you know treatment center. We were talking about the other day, Jason. That if you finish Peak's curriculum. Uh, you, have a, you are 100% more likely to be in recovery. If you leave treatment earlier, you have a 14% chance of recovery, just with a little bit of like the curriculum you know, underneath your belt. And this is one of the big things uh, uh, to address is, is the communal work. Why do we invest in family systems? We don't get, we don't, you don't get paid to do family work yeah. at Peaks <laughs> yeah. Recovery Centers, right? Yeah. We have to use real resources coming into Peaks to promote that and implement. Well, we invest in it because it's the first community resource available out there is your loved ones who are on the outside of the treatment facility and then your friends and you know, everybody else that follows in that regard. That's where that investment opportunity comes in for all treatment settings and why we're engaged in that. But uh, out of that, right, it, it really does take this community commitment to really resolve that. You know, maybe the person left treatment as well, too, uh, or this daughter left treatment and the mom's in a position and watching the relapse. You know, the, the, you know if, if you were at peaks and that happened, you'd call us and we'd be like, all right, let's walk through this. Let's take an hour just to sit with you and negotiate your feelings, your boundaries, that sort of thing. And, um, and I think that's right-sized in the world. But, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, um, I just wanted to again, just touch on the point of the real community commitment here that's required to get somebody well at the end of the day. That's why we're advocating for tax dollars into behavioral health and these sorts of things. I, if tax dollars go into Medicaid, that doesn't help us here at Peaks Recovery Centers, yeah. but it puts more focus into the community that supports individuals struggling across socioeconomic demographics um, and creates just better structures in that way. And so, um, I don't know, Jay, am I on point or, you know, no, I think yeah, I, yeah, that was good. there wasn't one thing I disagreed with. Okay. So. Yeah, I think that's beautiful and that the family systems really matter in that. And I, I love what Jason said. And I think peop, maybe families have heard what you said just in a really watered down version and they didn't understand it. And I wonder if it happened five, 10 years ago when they're like, stop loving your loved one to death. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And what you defined so eloquently and so clearly was there's this love into recovery. Yeah. And there, this really is this maladaptive kind of about me, yeah. right? And really exacerbating um, really some of that shame, not only for the family side of things, but for the client. And so really loving somebody into recovery in an appropriate way with compassion and a good boundary system, um, I think has the opportunity to pull shame out of the center of the conversation. Yeah. Because it's, it's just very clear. Yeah. 
And that's what I really love about boundaries, boundaries, and that's what's really difficult in family systems is just to be clear with your loved ones. Yeah. Just crystal clear. And I always go back to Brene Brown on that, you know, the clear is kind. And I've been working on that since I've heard that. Yeah. You know? The, and I totally agree. And, and the other thing that occurred to me as you were talking right there, Chris, too, is that it is so important to set boundaries when you're in a calm mind yourself. Because yeah. yeah. so often we set boundaries out of our anger, out of our fear. And, you know, like, I'm never talking to you again, or mm -hmm. like, I'm never paying for another thing, or whatever. Yeah. We make these grand pronouncements that are impossible to uphold. Uh -huh. And it's just really important, like, setting good boundaries and finding and being able to describe to your loved one the path back into your family is hard and it takes some time and it takes a calm mind yeah. and clarity of thought to say, mm -hmm. here's what I'm willing to do. That feels like it's okay with myself. I can, I can take you to the laundromat and, and you can go have a quick, quick shower at the campground nearby or whatever. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pay for that or whatever, but you're not, you're not entering my threshold or you're not coming into my house or whatever, but here's the path back. Like, because it, this isn't about you're a bad person. I want you to know you're a great person. I love you. Your heart is amazing. And here's the path back uh, into, into back. relationship. And I want you back, yeah. exactly. But I can't force you back. Yeah. It, you have to choose to come back. Mm -hmm. And that is a difficult decision to make as a parent. And, and especially when we have depression or substance use, which can be really kind of deadly diseases, if you will, uh, um, that's scary. It's hard to imagine and hard to think about, but um, I think it's a really important component to be really thoughtful and mindful uh, of those boundaries as well. Yeah, and I wonder, and when I was reading that and we were talking a lot about Gabor Mate too, is that there was a quote in his book in regards to substances, and I think family systems sometimes that have difficulty understanding why, why we engage in those substances so quickly out of a treatment episode. Um, and there was a doctor in his book who was, in my opinion, famously quoted for saying, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. Yeah. You know, it's hard to get enough of something that almost works. Um, and that's interesting to conceptualize. Yeah. You know. It is. Well, um, guys, I, I appreciate the discussion. Um, I feel like we can keep going forever. But uh, we are at a time. Um, I, I, I do want to thank my guests, the brothers, Chris and Brandon Burns, uh, for joining me can today. We, can we, before we dive out of oh, here, host, please. I want to interrupt. Can we get these responsibility quotes out of the way? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because... Yeah, because I've, I've been stating a lot, and I, and I want to be clear, like, this isn't, like, these aren't personal opinions. Like, they're, we, I, I think what, what I just want to support this mother with is, you know, boundaries is the separation. Okay, when boundaries pull away, and this is the path back into your right, we're also enforcing, in some way, responsibility. You take this next step, it puts you closer to family system. Mm -hmm. You take this next step, it puts you here. And, and out of that, we're not, we're not living in this moment of just you know, brute force, philosophical, free will nonsense, right, and, and agency. So um, I'm going to have uh, Dustin and Carrie uh, Brockberg, uh, it sounds like they're married, PhDs, military uh, family, uh, coming on the show here in a few weeks. And, and out of their book, uh, it's, again, it's In Your Covert Mission. It's a trauma book aimed at military uh, individuals. Um, and I'm, I'm nearly through the book, great book so far, but it says, if you struggle with anxiety, for example, and you finally agree to see a therapist, you'll soon realize that they don't take away your anxiety. It's not their job, sorry to break it to you. What therapists do is give you tools and training, right? So in that regard, you know, when your trauma is exposed, it's like, okay, I see it in therapists, right? You're giving the tools in that moment, but you step into the unsafe world, shit, I forgot my toolkit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how do I do this or yeah. whatever, right? Deep breathing, <sighs> okay, it's not working, right? You know, we, we panic in those moments, but you know, just want to bring 
out of that, and this is a directed at military members certainly, a little bit closer to that reality. And then also from Gabor uh, Mate out of the Myth of Normal. Um, and he has a great introduction, right? Getting off the airplane, being mad his wife won't come pick him up. Yeah. Read the book, especially I think for this mother, this is a great book to yeah. uh, read and work through from an educational standpoint. But my wife will not allow me to get away with pinning the entire blame for my arrival gate hissy fit on Nazis and fascists as an infant trauma. He's a Holocaust survivor um, <laughs> and Jewish family. Yes, the backstory merits compassion and understanding. That's what every person with SUD, mental health and otherwise, should be met with, compassion and understanding. And she, his wife, has given me an abundance of both. But there comes a point when, in quotes, Hitler made me do it won't fly. <laughs> Responsibility can and must be taken yeah. in that moment, right? So it's just a recognition from a gentleman uh, or you know, individuals writing these books that they, from their own stories and experiences, recognize at some point, ah, I have to put that next best foot forward. Nobody can force me and nobody can take that for me. It does not dismiss the responsibility of boundaries and family systems to support that best foot right. forward. At the same time, all of the background Holocaust survivor cannot be used as a continued excusatory story for not getting well. Mm -hmm. From one step forward, not taking the drink for the first time and reaching out to that community support, outpatient or otherwise. And I just wanted to be clear about that because I'd hate for the viewers to get back and be like, you know, yeah. choice model, you said that didn't work and here we are talking about choices. But, um, you know, at some level of this, I think that gives families a breath of fresh air, right? That, I don't, you know, excuse is a strong word, but we want to move positively in the right direction and not excuse continued behavior. Treatment didn't work for me. Treatment isn't going to work in the sense of you're cured. You know, it's a project. And, you know, when you guys, you know, shoved me off to the meadows and I needed it in that moment, uh, 50 pounds ago and so forth, you know, in uh, July of 2019, um, where I'm at today and my mental wellness, my ability to show up in a stressful work environment, all these sort of things around you know, the individuals we treat and the dynamics of it, um, I'm more capable today because one, I was given, I was shown, go do this. Um, also on the other side, recognized I had to do my own work in it and continued work on the other side and continue to lean into it. Otherwise, just going there and doing it would have only been you know, a couple weeks as far as a, a lasting experience, so. I think it's a, great, it's a great quote because what it essentially says is the recovering individual will have to take the step forward and the recovery community will follow. Yeah. But the recovery community or the family system can't be out in front of the individual yeah. Yeah. for really good reason. I like that quote a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I appreciate your visual with your hands because I feel like the family is saying, I'm right here. Yeah. I'm not going to chase you as you're doing all the things over here, but we're right here. Yeah. And we can describe the path back to And I recognize here. you hate it when I try and just wrangle it's, you in. That's like exactly this, right. You know? And that's what... And, and that's what you do as a parent of a two-year-old, right? yeah. but it isn't what you do of a, as a parent of a 22-year-old. Yeah. So. Or even of a seven-year-old. Yeah. All the time. I mean, it's a it's a process. Yeah. <laughs> of uh, of slow release of yeah. your kids. Um, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> that, that will make well, me cry next probably. Week. Yeah. 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 Next week. Tears, tears with Jason on yeah. the next episode. Uh, <laughs> that's go. our spinoff podcast. Yeah. <laughs> tears with Jason. Yeah. Um, Brandon, do you have any more quotes on that paper? No, man. Uh, or can I, uh, Jason, take can us I take out. It out. Take us out, uh, man. Thanks again, uh, Burns <laughs> Brothers, uh, for being here. Um, and thank you, viewers, for uh, making it through this episode. Um, I hope. I hope the, the writer of that letter uh, found this or email found this helpful. Um, anyway, that's it for this episode. Please find us on uh, Spotify, Apple, uh, 
podcast. I don't know how you, yeah, podcast. Yeah. Um, Facebook, Instagram, um, and keep your eye on TikTok. Good things may be coming. Yeah. And, uh, and with that, we'll go ahead and sign out. Yeah.